from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program presenting biographical interviews of people who have chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Nina Lemke Harvey. Nina had a near-death experience when she was three or four years old, which seemed to drive the direction of her life. She takes us through her spiritual journey in this interview. I started the interview by asking Nina where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I was born in Cali, Colombia, in South America. I don't remember Cali very well because we moved when I was only a few months old. And then from there on to Bogota, which is the capital of Colombia. I remember Bogota very clearly. So really, my memory and my history sort of began in Bogota. My parents, you see, met here in London during World War II. Uh, my mom is English, and my father was Danish. When the war broke out, she was stuck in London and went through the Blitz. And my father came back from his job in Venezuela at the time. He was an engineer to serve in the RAF because he couldn't return to Denmark because it was occupied. So he returned and was training in the RAF when they met at a local dance. She looked across the room and said, that's the man I'm going to marry, and she did. And so when the war ended, they returned to his job in Venezuela, where two of my siblings were born and then moved to Colombia, and I was born there. There's five of us all together. I was, of course, surrounded by the Latin way of life, particularly after I came along. I I was the fourth born of five children. My elder sister and, and brother were more involved in the sort of expat community that my mother associated with in Bogota, in Venezuela. I believe they went to some uh, schools that were in English, but by the time I came along, although my first schooling was in a school called uh, the Anglo-Colombian, and they had the old English masters running through the corridors in in their black capes, as you see in the old films, it was all in Spanish. Out of all the children, I was the most immersed in the Latin culture. Amongst ourselves, uh, us siblings, we always spoke Spanish. Only with my mom did we speak English and my father when he was home because he traveled extensively with his different jobs. We didn't have a sort of stay-at-home dad. My mom sort of ran the show. When uh, my older sisters and my brothers were born, they were fairly well off with 
houses with pools and lots of help in the home. By the time I have a clear memory, I know my mother had decided that she wanted to make her mark, and she decided to um, open a factory and introduced, in fact, mayonnaise, peanut butter, canned salted peanuts, and her own equal to biscuit mix, pancake mix, that she created herself, and things like that. And she was doing really quite well. So I remember as a very young toddler running around and thinking I was being helpful going through the rooms where the girls used to sort the peanuts and shell the peanuts ready for making peanut butter. So it was quite an interesting childhood at that time until I had my, as I say, my experience that changed my life. And why don't you describe that for us? That's a difficult one for me. I did write a small story that got published about it, but I had a near-death experience. I couldn't have been any more than three or four. I was a very precocious child, and I remember quite clearly that my sister used to spend a lot of time with me and be my teacher. I was also very bright. By age three, I was reading and writing and doing sums. Then my life changed quite a lot. I don't remember all the details about what the situation was at the time, but I remember that I had choked on a candy one evening. Uh, the family was all together, and I went. I went to whatever place. Of course, when you're that young, your memory is as a child, and the recall of this event and the meaning of it didn't actually strike me, and I did not become aware of its significance in, it, in all its context. One of the reasons I haven't read a lot of experiences to do with NEDs is because I haven't wanted to affect my own memory. It was apparently quite similar to other people in the sense that I was surrounded by light, and words fail me when it comes to trying to express it, because there are no languages, there are no words on this planet that I know can express that feeling. Even in that small toddler-child way, I felt connected to every part of the universe, every part of everything and everyone, an extreme feeling of warmth and contentment and love and all sorts of words that actually do not express it. But then I became aware I could hear far off, far off, I could hear sadness and weeping. And it was like I kept hopping back and forth. What finally brought me back was I kept seeing my family. I kept being able to see into the room and see my father trying to revive me and my mother having turned her back to me to the fire crying and all my brothers and sisters surrounding me 
I didn't want to come back. <laughs> it felt so wonderful. I really didn't didn't see why they were so unhappy because I felt so wonderful. And it wasn't until I consciously, somewhere inside my my head, thought to myself, well, I really don't want Mommy to be unhappy. Oh, I know. I'll pretend I was playing dead. And that's when I, I came back. But if you like, I can read you this small story I wrote about it. I called it Choking on Candy, My Journey to Light. Warm feelings, the relaxed firelight that comes with the wood and coal at their most glowing, simmering, dark orange. Laughter fills the room, and the family are all there, even my beloved puppy. Sensations of such contentment and a breathless spurt of sweetness on my tongue. Candy wrapper crinkling in little fingers. Someone triggered the gulping, choking giggle that came from down inside me, and next I knew I was almost completely surrounded by a deeply peaceful, almost too bright light. How to recall the feelings, waves of pleasure, love, understanding, completeness, as it was then to a mere child, no more than four, perhaps even younger. Memory is like a set of photographs imprinted on my inner self, yet as real today as the moment, and just as hard to describe. The light. I want to go toward it as each wave of sensation that takes me closer to it makes me feel even more wonderful. Yet I can faintly hear sobbing. I can hear sadness behind me. I can feel pain coming from somewhere outside me. Snap, like the click of a shudder, I'm looking at each face and all of them at the same time. I see Poppy leaning over what looks like me, his face sad, crying gently, but pushing on my chest and blowing gently on my lips. I see brothers and sister and recall in detail what they are wearing and their faces all lost and scared and tearful and looking toward the chair facing the fire. My mother has her back to it all, She has turned away. She can't bear to look, her wet face glowing in the firelight. She is sobbing, and I don't want to hear it. It hurts me. It makes all the loveliness go away. Mommy, please don't cry. Mommy, I'm okay. Why is she so upset? What did I do? Why why can't she hear me? She may be mad with me. Wave upon wave of light and love, such love. Tears fill my eyes trying to tell you now of such love. Peace, no awareness of pain or sorrow or wrongdoing. And yet I know in my little heart, I feel the pull of her tears. I feel the pull of her pain and desperation. And just for a moment, I fight it, just a little bit. Just just for a bit, just not yet, please. 
I have to choose. And I know I have to choose. I know I have to have a very, very good story to tell her so she won't be mad at me. I don't like it when she's mad at the others. It scares me. I always want to make her happy. Time is irrelevant. It can only be seconds, minutes, yet it seems there is no time at all. Flowing outpouring of love, a feeling of a way in and through to the light. But the other hasn't left me. I know they're all there, and I feel it's my fault. Why, please, why can't I go? You can't go. You can't leave mommy crying. You have to be a good girl, I say to myself. What can I say so she'll stop crying? What can I do to make it all right? I can't tell her about this. I can't tell her I liked it better than with them. I can't not love them, can I? No, I love them much more than I ever knew, really. But I know, I know, I know. I'll tell Mommy I was pretending to be dead, that I was play-acting. <gasps> oh, the deep, painful intake of my breath, searing, burning in my chest, instantaneously upon that very thought. Snap. I am back in me. Sensations overwhelming. Poppy's big warm chest, he's holding me safe and close in his arms, carrying me over to the chair, still with its back to me, moving toward the warm fire and the tears. Suddenly she's grasping desperately at me, holding, pulling and pushing me away and back, this way and that. She's saying words, oh, so, so many words. And I say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Mommy. I was just pretending. I'm okay. I was just pretending to be dead. Don't cry. Please don't cry. Please. Then I feel my tears and my own sadness and heaviness. And my beautiful warm light is gone. I never forget it. Not ever. And that is the only way I've been able to express it so far. After that, I had a deep sense of a loss, and I used to find it very difficult to deal with my brothers and sisters. I always felt something was missing, and I used to go out into our big garden and sit with the dogs and talk to God or whoever was up there because we didn't really have any particular religion in my family although my mother did investigate things like Christian science and read books by Norman Vincent Peale on the power of positive thinking and so on. And I, too, was a voracious reader. But in 1963, we moved to Barranquilla, and I was put in a school which was completely Catholic, and we actually lived right across from a seminary as well, <laughs> made for a lot of interesting battles between my mother and the local priest who would come over and complain to her that 
my elder sister was being blatant by sitting on the patio and taunting the young boys in the seminary. And it was quite a scene to see her dressing them down and telling them that they were causing unnatural things for the boys who were only trying to get an education and really didn't have a calling to priesthood. And hearing those young teenage boys whistling out the window at my sister. (laughs) I did find a path in the school I went to in the sense of being connected with Catholic side and the rituals and the immersion that I was given because despite not having any particular religion, I was compelled to participate in all the classes and do all the rosary and do all the 14 steps on my knees on special celebrations, etc. And although I, I knew that they were extreme, and I didn't believe that was... I somehow just did, didn't feel that's what God wanted of us. And also, my family's background, when we discussed it at home, they would basically say that people weren't required to, uh, to demean themselves for God because God wasn't a punishing God, and they didn't believe in mortal sins etc. So that was what got me up to about age, oh, I'd say 11 before we emigrated to Canada. And I'd left a few dreams behind by then as well, because I had, as I said, I, I was quite bright. I didn't know at the time, but I was quite bright. And I was also quite musical and I wanted desperately to play piano, and I wanted to be a dancer, and I tried to do ballet, but (laughs) my older brother had decided when I was about six to put me on a a burro, a donkey, and it had thrown me, and I'd broken my arm in about five places. It was set badly in a little village with no x-ray machine, so it was crooked, so the ballet teacher said I'd never done. That's a very rough outline as to how we got to Barranquilla, and then there times got hard. My mom decided that we needed to move to Canada where her parents had emigrated from England, moved the whole family, lock, stock, and barrel, in 1965. So what we did is we flew to Miami and bought what they call an estate car here, but I believe it's a station wagon in America. And we drove across the country, and that is the first time that I ever discovered or knew what prejudice was, because up till then, despite being very blonde, very Danish-looking, very European, very white-skinned, I had never felt any prejudice against me, and as I said, I was the child most immersed into local schools, so all my friends were typically Colombian uh, and of all, all types and backgrounds. When we drove through the South, 
of the United States in 65, the first time we encountered prejudice, I didn't understand. I, I didn't even know what it was. And my father had to explain to us what the signs meant at certain gas stations and certain shops. He was such a man of principle, my big Danish dad, that he would not buy anything from shops with those signs or get petrol from any of the gas stations. So sometimes we had to push the car quite a while before we got to one that didn't have one. It made me cry very much because, as I said, after my experience, I had this deep sense of what was just and what was what was right. I felt it was such a, a wicked thing to separate humanity when, to me, we were all one and all connected. So we settled in Canada. My father had struggled getting work despite his vast experience because he had to join unions, etc. And because he didn't have North American credentials, his had been from before the war in Denmark and had been lost in our move. We had many of our belongings in crates stolen in, in transport. I then was feeling quite isolated from the rest of the family and my siblings. I, I just seemed to be leaping forward in my appetite for knowledge. I read anything I could get my hands on. I had been like that in Spanish as well in Colombia, but when I got to Canada, I just couldn't get enough and heading into my teens and the peer pressure and the culture, culture shock of moving was quite extensive as well. Because here I was, a very Anglo-looking female with a very British accent, which got made a lot of fun of. I found it a very, very big adjustment. And I also got put three grades forward because the academics in Colombia were far superior to the ones in Canada. I had already been a grade ahead anyway in Colombia. Between being the wrong age for the group I was in class with and standing out a bit, because even though it was the 60s and there was the Beatles and rock and roll and and flower power beginning, etc. It still was not acceptable to dance in a very salsa Latin way for a young girl. I was considered to be not appropriate. Body language as well was completely different, which I was very sensitive to and became very inhibited about. Went through a great deal of, of tests because, again, I always felt there was something I was looking for, and I just couldn't find, no matter what I read, no matter where I looked, I just didn't feel I fit. I got into the sort of golden age of self-help, really, in the sense that I, I got hooked on things like The Art of Loving by Eric Fromm and, and The Prophet by Khalil Gibran, and when I hit my teens... I was having so many problems that my mother 
decided that to take me to a psychologist, and after two sessions, I'll always recall this, bless him, because he gave me a book list, one of which was Games People Play by Eric Byrne, and said, I think your main problem is your family, not you. <laughs> <laughs> and to try and and get some self-esteem and try and get some confidence because he felt that I was very bright and could do a lot with my future if I if I just had a bit of support. But unfortunately, my family was quite caught up in a lot of their own problems. I had to get away from that. I was having great difficulties dealing with everything, and it wasn't just teen angst. I actually became, I think, disheartened. I decided to leave school without graduating and go and get a job. So I moved up the island because we had moved to Vancouver Island. And it fell, fell apart quite quickly. So I decided to come back and go to college and do my equivalency exams. One day I um, got home from classes and no one was home and I started to cry and I just could not stop crying. So I started panicking because I thought, well, something's very wrong because, you know, I've been crying for too long. I couldn't think of anyone to help me. So I dug out the yellow pages and found the number of the old psychologist I had seen at 13, because I was 16 by now. And I called him in between sobs, and they sent a taxi to pick me up. Apparently, quite a common thing that happened in the 60s, late 60s, early 70s, with young women in general, any sort of emotional difficulties that young girls had in those times by hospitalizing what they considered the problem person. In my case, this psychologist said to me, well, you may not like this, but I have a solution for you. If you need somewhere to get away and you need somewhere to stop worrying and you need somewhere to just center yourself and find out what's going on, you can sign yourself in and you can then discharge yourself if you feel it's appropriate. And in there you can relax and rest. There's a lot of other young people in there. There's a lot of people with a lot of difficulties right now. So I I did go there, and I still had not been able to stop crying. And I was sedated, and I had to go into the induction area, which was actually a locked area. And everyone had to go through that. He'd warned me about that and said not, not to panic because it didn't mean I had to stay in there, that I was completely there voluntarily. And while I was in that locked area, they sedated me and tried to get me to calm down and stop crying. And of course, looking back, uh, you know, it, it was basically, I think, a mini nervous breakdown, really. And the next day, I was put out in the general area and there were a lot of young people there 
with different problems. There were some that were very depressed and suicidal. There were some that were detox because there was a lot of drugs around in the in the mid sixties. There were quite a group of us in between the ages of about I'd say sixteen to twenty five really. But all I remember really prominently is I just shut everyone out. I mean, I just basically had to shut down. I spent hours and hours and hours in one of the recreation rooms. I had a small record player and a few old records someone had donated. And before I even knew what, what it meant or that it existed, I, I used musical therapy on myself, I guess. I'd always loved music. As long as I had my cigarettes and my music, that was fine. The reason I decided to share this part, because I've always been extremely inhibited about talking about it, and this is the first time I have really shared it in relation to my Baha'i journey, is because there was such a stigma attached to this, and there still is, especially here in England, anything that they consider mental weakness. But actually, I look back now, and I think it's one of the strongest, bravest things I ever did. And it was meant to be, because it was sort of my journey into the desert and finding my spiritual path. Because when I'd been there about a month and a half, and I was there a total of two months, I suddenly kept getting these words in my head constantly and this feeling of complete peace, very, very close, but not quite the feeling I'd had when I'd had my my near-death experience. I kept saying in my head, you need to just be, and, and the letters B and E would stand out in my head as if they were emblazoned on my my mind. You need to just be. And so I found an inner calm and an inner peace, and I felt I could handle anything and that I was ready. And I stopped taking any medications, and I refused all their treatments, and I signed myself out. I'm speaking with Nina Lemke Harvey, a Baha'i now living in England, describing her spiritual journey. In this segment, she mentions her friend John, who she had met at college before checking herself into the hospital. And I went back home, and my mother had been advised to leave me to it and let me do my own thing, which she did, bless her. It was about, I'd say... Within two weeks of that, two or three weeks, John popped over one day and brought a Seals and Crofts record. He played me this beautiful record, and it touched my heart, and I was, of course, eagerly reading everything on the back of the record and saw the word Baha'i and immediately wanted to know what it was, and he got very tense and anxious. So, oh, no, no, never mind, because he felt... He told me later he felt I was much too vulnerable and 
and he was worried about me being unduly influenced, etc. But I persevered, and I wouldn't let him go until he explained a little bit that he'd actually gotten involved in it, but he wouldn't say much. But he did comment there were firesides. So I said, right, well, I, I want to go to one of those. And he said, no, well, maybe in a little while. I said, no, I want to go to the next one. When is the next one? And so he said, well, actually, there's one this week. So I, uh, I went to that, and it turned out to be a girl that I'd spent years getting the bus with every morning. It sounded very interesting, but I like investigating and, and doing my own thing. Then on my way out the door, I said, right, well, I need a book. I need a book that tells me all about this faith and how it started and who began it and everything to do with it. Do you have a book like that? And she got me Baha'u'llah and the New Era. And I said, thank you very much, and went home. And when I got home, I was doing my bedtime routine and sat down, read 10 pages, and became a Baha'i. Completely, absolutely, with all of my being, I knew it had it was and was exactly what my heart had been looking for, what I'd been seeking, what I'd been searching so desperately for. Then I became afraid because I thought, right, maybe I won't be good enough and maybe I won't be smart enough. And it was about a month and a half after reading the book that a girl that was Baha'i but was inactive and suddenly she turned to me and, and asked me some questions about the faith. It was almost in a way of, do you really believe this stuff? I said, yes. But she said, well, why are you not a Baha'i? And I said, well, because I haven't qualified yet. I, I haven't read any books. I, you know, I haven't, other than my Baha'u'llah and the New Era and and this little prayer book I've got, I, I don't know anything. I have to pass. She said, pass what? You just, you just have to sign a card. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, you just, you just have to say you believe in all those things, and you are a Baha'i. And I was overjoyed. I mean, I couldn't believe it could be that simple. I was just on top of the world. You said that you read 10 pages of Baha'u'llah and the New Era, and you knew then that you were a Baha'i. Can you try to convey to us what it was that you read that made you think that way? I had looked at so many other religions, and there were so many things that they just could not satisfy me with because I was very logical and used to think very in you know, intellectualizing sort of person. And I definitely believed in science and evolution. And I definitely believed in the equality of, of women. And I had been quite a rebel before joining the faith uh, about women's issues and definitely been very outspoken about Vietnam. I didn't believe there were a lot of, quote, ministers on television at the time, too, that took a lot of funds off people and seemed so much, quote, 
brainwashing of children. I mean, I saw people in the third world that were poor beyond measure, having seven and eight children because they were forbidden to use any contraception, and they had no money, and there were just so, so many factors that had built up over my lifetime so that when I read that no child can declare till they are of an age of maturity, of the age 15, and that we had to teach them progressive revelation, and that the rules as I saw them, that and the laws that I had found in the other religions were outdated and didn't fit our times, were indeed renewed. It wasn't just rational thinking. It ticked all the boxes, but my heart just knew. In addition to finding out that children just don't automatically become Baha'is, but at the age of 15 they determine their own destiny of what they believe themselves, you mentioned teaching children progressive revelation. Can you explain to folks what that term means? Well, it's what I've done with all my children. I believe all children should learn about all the messengers from God, and that if all children were given the opportunity to be taught about the unity of all religions and how very similar they are and how they have all taught love and peace and brought different laws that applied to those times, on the science side, for example, one of the things that I used to teach my children when they, I felt they were age-appropriate and they understood enough about science is, is I would say to them, in the time of Moses and in the time when they did not have the science or the technology to understand the poisonous element, the bacterial element of eating uncooked pork, it was extremely sensible and saving many, many lives to say, do not eat pork. But once science caught up with that, that law no longer was necessary. Therefore, new laws needed to come along and, and change that. Because that, to me, was science and religion going hand in hand. I've taught all my children about Jesus and about Muhammad and Buddha, Doriasa. Krishna, that they had something to compare to. I had reached the age of 21, and, and I decided to go back to university and get my nursing degree. I had been preparing to pioneer. Nina, you mentioned pioneering. Yes. Can you explain to folks what pioneering is? Well, pioneering is where you leave your home and you go to a place in the world, it, it's certainly not in any sort of missionary status or form. We go to live in the areas that are perhaps without Baha'i members, and we try by our example and our lifestyle, and also when asked, 
and when questioned about why we're there and you go and settle and before you know it there's nine members and as soon as there's nine members you can form a local assembly and your community starts to grow from there because of independent investigation of truth being one of our major beliefs and certainly one that applied to my life in every way we don't Processize. We don't push it on people. I always say to people, I'm trying to be a Baha'i. So I pioneered to several posts. I think my biggest challenge as a pioneer was coming to England, and then secondly after that, my most exciting and beautiful experience as one would be going to Panama to be caretaker of the... Temple. You're referring to the Baha'i Temple in Panama? Yes. I'm speaking with Nina Lemke Harvey, a Baha'i now living in England, describing her spiritual journey. In this next segment, Nina speaks about her second near-death experience, or NDE as she refers to it. By this time, Nina is married and has children. I had a very unexpected heart attack, which was my second near-death experience. I was only 38. My daughter, my, my baby, was only 16 months at the time. Again, uh, words fail me to express what the experience was like, but it was very different from the child one in the sense that I was very conscious in that realm of light, peace, whatever the words are for it, that everything would be fine and that my children would be fine and they would be looked after and that I could go in peace. But that I wasn't allowed to yet. (laughs) It wasn't time yet. And this was, let's see, my heart attack lasted about from about 8 in the morning till I went to hospital at 7 in the afternoon because I was in complete denial being a typical nurse I picked up my daughter out of her crib and I couldn't lift her for chest pain and I thought well I've, I've got a virus made lots of excuses I thought I had pneumonia or pleurisy or whatever and proceeded to look after my family all day, and I remember having a very strange day. My NDE was in the afternoon when I decided during the baby's nap that I would have a hot bath. As odd as it may sound, somewhere in my subconscious, I knew something was very wrong because I decided I would have a bath, and not only that, but I had to give myself a pedicure and <laughs> and make myself all tidy just in case. And then later that evening when my husband came off the fields from drilling seeds, because it was a Friday night and because I was rolling around on the floor while we were trying to get our daughter to bed, he said, oh, oh for heaven's sakes, we better take you down to the surgery and see what's going on because otherwise we'll have to wait till Monday for antibiotics. So... He took me down to the surgery, and I was immediately whisked off by ambulance to the hospital. 
I don't know how to explain that experience because it happened in the bath. I don't remember anything about the bath at all except returning to it and knowing that I was making a conscious choice and that it was because I had something yet to do and I didn't know what it was, but I had something yet to do. After that, I was told by the physicians that it wouldn't be a good idea to nurse any longer. It was too heavy a work. Although they could find no actual vascular cause, they felt it was stress-related or virally related, but there was damage to the heart muscle. So I retrained as a Montessori teacher, which I'd always been keen on, and I felt was very close to what a high education should be about. Panama came about simply because it seemed we were heading for Argentina. They had a need there. We were starting to plan that when I was sitting in bed reading my Baha'i journal here in England and saw a little advertisement in it for caretakers for the Panama Temple with a phone number to ring. So I rang them up. They asked us to come down for an interview. We had an interview with the assembly, and they accepted us. And we moved there in 95 and took over. And I think out of all my Baha'i experiences, that is the most outstanding in my mind. The temple... Uh, as it's called the Mashrikil Adkar, which is Arabic for dawning place of the remembrance of God, and all religions are welcome. The one in Panama is similar to the others in other continents simply because it has nine sides and nine entrances. But each one is very much architecturally fitted to the historical roots of the place it's built. They're open to the public. They're reserved for worship. There's no sermons allowed. We read writings from all religions. The Panama Temple was open in 1972. This beautiful temple is, it's on top of a cliff. It's perched on a high cliff, which is actually in English called the Singing Hill. Cerro Sonsonate. The dome is covered in thousands upon thousands of small Italian oval tiles. Each one is totally unique. Each tile has a special pattern on it that glows in the sunlight. And when the lights were shone on it at night, it also reflected off beautifully. There is no water up there, so each point of the nine points actually is a collection for rain that goes into underground tanks. And then those tanks had to last us the year round after rainy season. It was an amazing experience. A friend of mine here used to keep my spirits up by sending me what they call a pioneer post. Through the, through the mail and then eventually email. I used to send her little snippets of information 
and news to, to print in her post for fellow pioneers. She recently put a book together of these stories and asked to print one of my short ones. It's under July 1998. We, we were there from 1995, October 95, to February 98. I've written here. She's written in the book. Nina pioneered to Panama in 1995 to serve as caretaker of the house of worship. And this is the snippet she added to her book. On Easter Sunday, yes, I know this sounds quite off the wall, but Baha'u'llah is full of delightful surprises that are both awesome and fun at times. I was asked to help a crew of armed guards that suddenly rode up and wanted to camp in our cabin, but thankfully found alternative rooms as I explained to them our feelings as Baha'is about guns in our home. I was about to learn that they were signaling the arrival of the President of the Republic of Panama. Anyway, there I was with our kids and neighbors, standing about in shorts and t-shirts, in a very non-glamorous atmosphere on the beach, when himself and his entourage arrived. The helicopter, which had not heated the rather erratic chalk powder circle drawn with an arrow to define where the helicopter should land and in which direction so that the skids would not sink in the mud and the cow muck, began to sink, (laughs) so had to elevate and land according to the arrow previously missed. A path of sand that had very quickly and roughly been created from the pasture to the beach to avoid any muddy feet was lined with the guards and all of us. We were in the province of Boca del Toro on the island and in an area called Boca de Drago, which was named after Sir Francis Drake. As they swept through to visit a house on our point, El Toro, the bull, as he is affectionately known, wrapped his arm about my son Aaron's shoulders and addressed him in Spanish, saying, How are you, my son? To which Aaron proceeded to chat back in perfect Spanish, amazing to me, as when he left the UK in 95, he knew not a word. The first lady, the primera dama of the country, who had sent a very nice substitute to represent her at our 25th anniversary at the temple, slowed her step and pointed straight at me. She asked who I was and was quickly told that I had been at the Baha'i temple for a while. I thus had the privilege of hearing the word Baha'i on other tongues before I even got my mouth open. I then spoke up and found myself in a very short but powerful conversation with the First Lady. I thanked her for her support at our event, and she wanted to know if her substitute had been satisfactory to us. She had had a report back that our event had been quite breathtaking and wonderfully spiritual, and she was glad to have been in some way a part of it. I thanked her again admitting that as administrators, we had been too busy to hear the talks, 
but that we also had felt the power of the moment and hoped to see some videotape of it. I then backed in fade mode into the crowd as she continued on their destination. I just find it so awesome that after two years of service and efforts to teach and feeling many times quite inept and unworthy and unable to reach the levels that one sets oneself, there I am in shorts, in flip-flop sandals, on a windswept paradise of beachland, in the middle of a small oasis in a jungle area, and in a moment the most powerful human being in this country and his wife suddenly drop out of the sky hug my son, and ask me if their efforts for the temple were satisfactory. Need I say more? It's awesome how you don't notice that you are being noticed because being I was a British citizen as well as a Canadian citizen, I was invited to all embassy events, and at one embassy event, after the following election, the lady president that took over from El Toro, <laughs> she was at the event, and she also came up to me and said, oh, you used to be at the Baha'i Temple, didn't you? So I thought, yes, one has to be aware that one is always being observed and live the life as best you can. So, Nina, thank you so much for sharing your story. It's quite remarkable. You're very welcome. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Nina Lemke Harvey, a Baha'i now living in England who grew up in Colombia and is the former caretaker for the Baha'i House of Worship in Panama. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.bahai.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Beautiful
God made a pack with Abraham Never leave man alone So Abraham gathered his family Brought his people home Then came Moses, gave the world a push Climbed up on a mountain high the Ten Commandments from a burning bush and put together his first tribe. WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.